Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. This month, September of 2020, the largest ever study of Viking genetics was published. This new report has revealed fascinating details about who the Vikings were, including some effects of their vast trading networks and seafaring expeditions. If you've been on social media recently, you'll probably know that this study has gone viral across the internet. For this reason, I thought it would be an interesting topic to explore on the podcast. Joining me to discuss the recent Viking genetics study and, additionally, Viking Age burials is Dr. Soren Sindbeck, Professor of Archaeology at Aarhus University in Denmark. Before we get into my conversation with Soren, I want to tell you that we've recently partnered with Medieval Warfare magazine as a way to support this podcast. Medieval Warfare is the highest quality magazine dedicated to warriors and weapons of the Middle Ages. Every issue features specially commissioned artwork and original maps that bring medieval combat to life. If you've ever wanted to support the history of Vikings, please consider doing so by signing up for a digital subscription to Medieval Warfare, which is only 10 bucks every six months. If you choose to sign up, please do so via the link in the description of this episode, as the History of Vikings will receive a commission. You can also get a 10% discount off your subscription if you use the coupon code VIKINGS at checkout. Without further ado, Here's my conversation with Dr. Soren Sindbeck. Soren, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I must confess I'm a big fan of your YouTube channel where you discuss so many fascinating elements of Viking Age archaeology from the halls of great rulers to even Viking Age fortresses and then pagan rituals. There's just so much on your YouTube channel, and I encourage listeners to check it out via the link in the description below. Well, I'm exceptionally excited for our topic of conversation today, which is indeed a topic that has really taken the internet by storm, and that is the population genomics of the Viking world. Earlier this month, in September of 2020, the largest ever study of Viking Age genetics has revealed new insights about these people who, for better or for worse, we today know as the Vikings. So, Soren, would you introduce this study in sort of layman's terms, briefly, to our listeners who maybe haven't got a chance to review it? Uh, Very simply, what is it? And what are some of the most interesting aspects of it? Well, in very simple terms, the study follows 442 individuals whose skeletons have been sampled and their DNA have been determined. Now, if that was a modern population, it would be perfectly ordinary today, but this is not a modern population. This is DNA from skeletons from people who inhabited the Viking world. So skeletons from Scandinavia, British Isles, the East, and places in Europe that Viking Age Scandinavians were in contact with. And it's the first study of its kind. If you are 
following Viking studies, you know that there has been other DNA studies coming up in recent years. One of the famous ones was the Birka warrior that was uh, genetically tested and found to be a woman that has been debated a lot recently. But that was an individual sample. What this is, is, as I said, 442 individuals. And this is the kind of science that's becoming possible now because DNA sampling of ancient material has become so effective that it's possible and affordable to do something. So for the first time, we sort of see a group portrait of a lot of people from the Viking Age, and we get to understand how to read their DNA, or we get the first glimpse into that. I can best, I think, exemplify by, by again, comparing to that Birka warrior woman study. Well, in that study, it was possible to make sense of the fact that this DNA could be shown to be a woman's DNA. But a lot of the other traits, these millions and millions of, of, of data that, that is in a DNA sequence, could not really be compared to much because we didn't know many other individuals. Now, in the study we have here, we have the material to say, what does the typical DNA of an individual in Norway or in Sweden or in Denmark look like? Which individuals in those areas do not have that typical DNA? If they don't, where does that DNA come from? And for that reason, it becomes possible for us to read stories about how people moved about. And moving about and interacting with people from elsewhere is pretty much what the Viking Age is about. So in that sense, it is a hugely important study that has, that has just been published. And, and I also think it's, it's important as it is. It's just the tip of the iceberg of something that's going to be a really major contribution to Viking studies in the next decade. Indeed. And Soren, I must ask, obviously, this study has revealed a lot about the Vikings. And I know there's a lot of sort of pedantry involved in defining the word Viking. But I must ask, when we're talking about Vikings in relation to this study, who exactly are we talking about? Are we talking about the sort of solely seafaring raiders from medieval Scandinavia? Are we talking about the general population of the medieval Scandinavians? During the early Middle Ages, I think there is a bit of ambiguity in this paper as there is in the general Viking studies. So the study set out to focus on Viking Age Scandinavians, so the people who either lived in Scandinavia in the Viking Age or had come from Scandinavia and settled elsewhere. But in order to do so, of course, they needed or we needed to sample a much broader set. So we needed to have examples of the DNA from people in the British Isles or in Russia or even in the Mediterranean area to understand the difference between that signal and what we've got from the Viking Age individuals. So the best way to describe what the paper is about, what this study is about, is people in the Viking world. Among those, there's a lot of Viking Age Scandinavians. And if you want to call them Vikings, I, I don't object to that. I'm a Scandinavian, so I, I like the Viking Age. I like to, to think of it as part of the past in my country and in the Scandinavian countries. But of course, we are also dealing with the Vikings in the narrow sense of those who went out to sea as sea warriors, which is what, if anything, if, if you can define the term as any one thing, in the medieval and, and Viking Age sources, 
that is what it is, a, a sea warrior or a pirate. And quite clearly, we see examples of both, both in the terms of Viking Age Scandinavians that have popped up in places where they didn't originally come from. And we also see examples of people who were buried in a way which very much say that they were sea warriors, but who are not Scandinavians, or at least not exclusively Scandinavians. And all of those things reveal new stories about that world that we are dealing with, the world of the Vikings. Very interesting. And Soren, we know that the Vikings were great travelers. They were great seafarers. They were a maritime people, and they possessed great trading networks that stretched all across Europe and indeed the medieval world. Anybody who has read even an introductory book or article on the Vikings knows that there has been a vast amount of Arabic coins, dirhams, found in Scandinavia. And that is just one example that proves this notion that the Vikings certainly got around far and wide. Well, what is your take on this study? What does it tell us about the Vikings and how they got around, sort of the Vikings as great travelers and maybe even as immigrants? Well, first of all, it confirms a lot of things that we think we know. Now, some people find that disappointing, and that has been clear in some of the commentary that we've already got on the study that some people say, oh, but we knew that already. Why are you making a fuss about the fact that you see connections between Russia and Scandinavia and the British Isles or the North Atlantic Islands? We knew that. But from this point of perspective, it's actually great that it does because we're reading this story from a completely new data set, the DNA, which were in their bones. Had that shown something that was radically different than what we thought we knew, we would almost certainly be faced with a very big problem. If everything that we thought we knew about Vikings was wrong, as one headline had it in the past week, it was probably something in this study that hadn't come out right. But actually, very many things in this study has come out just right. We see the kind of connections that we've heard of from other sources, from the written sources and from the archaeology. We see that there's particularly close links between Denmark and England. We see particularly close links with Sweden and the East. And we see particularly close links between Norway and the North Atlantic area. That's very reassuring. So that also means that we can go from that and look into some of the things that we didn't know before. And one of the things that I think is really fascinating that we didn't know before, and which is, is quite clear in this data set, is the difference between the people who live near the coast or in the islands and those who live more into the hinterlands or the fjord areas, which is really quite striking. And, and several people have commented on that. So in the big islands like Gotland or Öland or some of the Danish islands, we tend to find quite a varied DNA with evidence of mixture with people from near and far, really, as you could imagine in a, in a coastal community. The point is that when, you, when a society has boats, some destinations that are really geographically quite distant are suddenly quite close in terms of how easy you can get there. Now, if we then compare that to what we see in, for instance, the Swedish inland in the forest areas or in some parts of Norway, that's a much more homogenous. So some have even said that the people in these areas, in the inland and um, in the highlands, perhaps we shouldn't even 
speak of those as Vikings or Viking Age Scandinavians because they weren't part of the Viking Age. If you put it on the edge, perhaps they weren't. Perhaps nobody from their communities ever went to sea. Whereas if you had grown up in one of the islands or near one of the great trading towns, you would be on board a boat from the moment you could stand on your feet almost. So I think that that's quite fascinating because there's no, as you probably know, there's very few written sources from Scandinavia proper. We've got lots written about the Vikings from Western Europe or from English or Irish sources or from Arabic sources in the East. But in Scandinavia, there's only the occasional runestones really that tells us anything. So when we see patterns like these, it's actually something that we've seen for the first time. And I think that might be, to me, one of the biggest general contributions to what we know about the Viking Age. It's not something that just comes from Scandinavia in an undifferentiated way. It comes from the particular areas in Scandinavia and leaves other regions uh, more or less aside. Genetically speaking, are there any insights into who the Vikings were? Were they mostly Scandinavian? Were they traditionally Scandinavian? As the Viking Age progressed, and the Scandinavians, presumably the first Vikings, if you will, intermarried and had children with people across Western Europe, especially in other places like the East and so forth, does the identity of the Viking begin to change in any way? There's certainly some very interesting indications. Now, 442 skeletons might sound like a lot, and, and in one way, of course, it is. But if you want to pursue this question, of course, we want more and more examples. And I know that several teams are working on that now. But if we go by what we have for now, we can see for one thing that already at the beginning of the Viking Age, so among some of our earliest samples, there is not a sort of pure breed. It's not like there was a people in Scandinavia who had lived with little contact to the outside world. Now, in fact, archaeologists and historians are not very surprised about that fact because we can see from archaeology all the trade connections that were, after all, with the European continent from Scandinavia in centuries prior to the Viking Age. It was not the boats made have been a new thing, but, but not trade as such. And also historians point to all the legends and narratives from the migration period when a lot of Germanic tribes from Northern Europe, including some tribes that are believed to be from Scandinavia, went far and wide about in the European continent. So in that sense, it's not perhaps so surprising, but still very interesting that to see that we have this evidence of a much more mixed population than, say, you would find in the Bronze Age DNA, which has also been studied in Scandinavia in the beginning of the Viking Age. But as the Viking Age moves on, we also see a trend towards even more, more active uh, mixtures. So one example we have of, one great example, actually, of uh, DNA samples in this study from just before the Viking Age is the now famous Salme boat find from Estonia. If you're not familiar with the Salme finds, it's two boats full of dead Vikings <laughs> that were uh, excavated a little over 10 years ago in, in Estonia. They were buried in these boats, but without any monumental mound or anything. It looks like it was a party of, of, of sea warriors that had been killed in battle and 
were buried by the survivors. So among the people in that crew, which can be related genetically to Middle Sweden, so they had come across the Baltic Sea to Estonia. Among that crew, there were no less than four brothers that could be identified. So here, DNA could identify something that no other method would have been able to do. And four of these people were actually brothers, and they actually had one more relative in that crew. So at this point in the Viking Age, this find suggests that at least some of those who went out were really from quite close-knit family groups or regional groups who went out together. When we move into the Viking Age proper and up through the Viking Age, we see more examples of what I would call weak ties, so people who have uh, cut loose and ended up in quite a different place. For instance, we have an example of two individuals, one found in Sweden and one found in England, that were actually close relatives. One of them must have traveled quite far. And we also see more evidence of people who, whose parents had come from different areas. And I think those are beginning to tell some really exciting stories that makes it possible for us to look at the archaeology of the graves where they're found in quite a new way. So to me, that's also one of the really big outcomes of this story. Well, Soren, you're an archaeologist, which is a fascinating profession, and especially Viking Age archaeology is so rich. I know at the beginning of this episode, I mentioned your wonderful YouTube channel, and you and I were talking before the interview about how really a person could have a podcast just about Viking Age graves and burials. I was listening to a lecture by Dr. Neil Price, and one way that he described archaeology is sort of, imagine that one goes to a Shakespeare play, and moments before the curtain closes and the play is over, you see a bunch of dead people lying on stage, you know, the result of the sequence of that play. If you're unfamiliar with that presentation, with that play and that series of events, that's going to be uh, rather puzzling and confusing to you if you didn't stay for the whole play. And in some ways, Viking Age graves and archaeology may be like that. Well, I'm wondering, because you're an archaeologist, do you have any favorite graves or burials or you know the, the genomes of individuals from those graves and burials that were denoted in this study? Maybe even some individuals that can tell us a little bit more about how Vikings really were more of a mixed sort of um, dynamic people. Well, I think you picked a very great quote by Neil there. Neil Price, of course, has studied some of these amazing burial rites that we sometimes find evidence of in the very rich graves where people were buried with a lot of equipment that can be read, so to speak, from the point of view of, of, of the archaeology. And not every Viking Age burial is like that. There's lots of the burials in this study that are really just a skeleton that was interred without any grave goods or with very few grave goods. But there are also a few examples of the kinds of very spectacular graves that um, Neil is talking about. And a few of them actually has got a completely new dimension from the study of the DNA. I think you can compare it to a movie where, well, Neil made the comparison of a play. So no, let, let's keep to that metaphor and say, let's, let's imagine you find the dead cast after a, a Shakespeare play 
say, Hamlet, since we are dealing with Vikings, you watch the dead cast and uh, try to make out what the play is like. And then suddenly you discover that one of the actors that you thought were a male is in fact a female. That's the kind of thing that DNA studies can do. So a few of the graves that are in this study really are like that, that they come out completely differently once you read their DNA and really deserve to be highlighted. They've not been highlighted so much in the study because this is such a huge set of findings to be reported in just a few pages. But if you look into the extra material, which is with that paper, there are some fascinating stories to be uncovered. One of them was a, a, a Norwegian grave, actually from the very north of Norway, in a place called Very, a small island, where there was a grave found many years ago with a very enigmatic setup. There were actually eight individuals in that grave. We don't have any information about some of the skeletons, but we know that there was a child on one side, there was an adult male to another side, and in the middle of the grave was uh, a woman buried with quite spectacular jewelry. This was very typically Scandinavian jewelry. The grave with multiple individuals is, is absolutely unique. It's not something you, you, you often see, and it raises all sorts of questions. Were the other individuals sacrificed? Uh, did they die from an epidemic or, who knows, food poison or something, some, some, some dreadful event? But the real surprise is then when you get the DNA of that woman buried in entirely Scandinavian costume. She is, in fact, completely Sami. Her DNA is, is unlike anything in, in, uh, else in that set in Scandinavia. So she was one of the Sami, the circumpolar population, which also lived in, in, uh, in northern Scandinavia, but was evidently treated in death uh, as a very highly honored person and in a Scandinavian costume. So whatever that story is, it's something that doesn't really square with what archaeologists think they know about Sami and Norse interactions. What we have known about from the written sources or from archaeology is that the Sami and the Norse have a lot of tension between them, and the Sami pay tribute to Norse chieftains. But here, there's something quite different going on which will need to be worked out. There's another grave in the same area in Norway, which also tells a lot about how cautious we should be with archaeology, because the skull in that grave was determined in the old report from the osteologist who had looked at it as a very clearly a Nordic type in the days when it was believed that the cranial type could be clearly assigned to different ethnicities. And it has also been determined as a female. And of course, the DNA comes out and tells us not only that it's a male, but also that it had so much Sami DNA that at least one of the parents must have been a Sami. So there are two graves far in the north of Norway that comes out with a completely different story than we knew beforehand. So uh, a couple of other graves, or, or one example that I also want to mention is from the, the Orkney Islands. One of those were from a site called Buckhoy in the island of, of uh, Bursay. And it was found along with several others in small cemetery on a site that had intrigued archaeologists because there was both artifacts that were associated with Scandinavians and with 
what's believed to be a local Pictish population. And the relationship between those two populations has been one that has been debated endlessly in Viking studies. As you may know, people in Orkney spoke a variant of the Nordic language known until modern times, and I believe that many still do or can speak it. And it has been questioned whether the incoming Scandinavians simply wiped out the local population or whether they found some way of coexisting with them. Now, uh, one of the graves from Bokhoi was a male grave that was found with spearheads and other weapons and artifacts that, to an archaeologist, looked everything like a Viking Age Scandinavian grave, and that was how it was interpreted. Only when the, the DNA was studied, it turned out that most, if not all, of that person's ancestry was British. So we believe that that's actually a Pictish individual who apparently lived and at least was buried in an entirely Scandinavian fashion. And that's one of the examples that has been highlighted in commentary to this study as a case of Viking being a job description, not something that necessarily defines your origin. For all we can tell, that individual lived as a Viking warrior, but had not a Scandinavian ancestry. So in that sense, some of the results that comes up really puts new dimensions to the story about the Viking Age. What are your, Soren, what are your key takeaways from this study? We've discussed so far uh, the many results, the many aspects of this study on Viking genomics, but I'm curious to you, what does this mean for the field of Viking studies? And even for those people at home who are not academics, but are very interested in reading and learning about the Vikings and listening to podcasts, what does this mean to them? I think if we, if we step one step back, what we have in this study is just the first wave of something that's going to fill uh, a lot of our podcasts and YouTube videos and what have you over the next years. This has so much potential to tell new things. One of the co-authors of this story has already explained in his YouTube channel how he's now part of another team preparing the next big study where they have picked new cases much more selectively because they can do that now. Now you can target graves for very specific questions. And now that this technology is fully operational and now that the sort of the baseline data that enables us to read the data is, is available. There's going to be so much that will come up. Ten years ago, archaeology was all about isotope analysis. That was the big game changer that had uh, become operational at that time. Um, and if you followed Viking archaeology at that time, many of the new stories that came out came from isotope studies. There were stories, for example, about how some of those buried in uh, the Viking Age fortress. Trelleborg in, uh, in Denmark, how they were not locals, but had come from far away, because that's what the strontium isotopes in their two uh, teeth uh, suggested. Just in the same way, DNA has the potential to unveil something that wasn't known before. And in the last resort, that may be a small addition to the whole corpus of what we know about the Viking Age. I know that. We will still, in 10 and 20 years' time, we will read the scaldic verse, we will study the runestones, we will read the sagas and interpret their evidence. 
Uh, we will scrutinize historical sources. But now we also have something more that uh, sometimes will change that. So I think this is a pilot study with all the flaws and with all the uncertainties that that has and with all the excitement that that has. But to me personally, it mainly signifies that we should stay very closely tuned to DNA studies over the next few years because that's where the picture will fill in. It's already been pointed out by some, and of course we knew that many regions are not as well covered as they should have been. We couldn't find enough skeletons to sample in Sweden, for instance, to get a good coverage. We haven't very many skeletons from Western Norway. We would have liked to because that's likely to be the region that has the closest contacts with the British Isles. And in England, we almost exclusively have data from two mass burials that were believed to be Scandinavians killed in the 1002 uh, St. Bryce Day Massacre. So that's not a lot to go by if you want to understand what the population of England was at the time. So there's lots of gaps to fill out. And every time you fill out one of those gaps, the whole picture is going to change a little bit. And sometimes it's going to change dramatically. One place where I just personally predict that we will see a revelation and possibly a massive change is with what to me is the big enigma of this study, the so-called early South European genome. This is genetic signal that we find, especially in Danish and South Scandinavian burials. Sometimes it's quite prominent. And the closest comparison within our current set is amazingly in southern Italy, where we have a few samples for comparison. So at this stage, we believe that this signifies that there must have been some contacts even before the Viking Age between somewhere in the Mediterranean area and Viking Age Scandinavia. Now, if you are well-versed in, in Viking Age history and in Scandinavian prehistory, that you could come up with all sorts of suggestions as to how this could come about. But I think for now, the cool-headed conclusion is that we probably miss a missing link somewhere in that. There could be, this could be various things. It could have been that the South Italian sequence there, in fact, had a genomic signals, signal that was not just typically Mediterranean, but had some earlier connections to that that would explain the Scandinavian parallelism. Or it could be that there's some kind of contact in the pre-Viking Age period and in the Viking Age that we haven't understood properly. But that, to me, I think, is the most exciting single part of this study, the mystery. But that's because I'm an archaeologist. I'm always into the mysteries. Indeed. Well, this has been a very fascinating conversation, Soren, and I thank you for coming on the podcast. Before you go, Soren, I mentioned your YouTube channel. I, well, I've mentioned it throughout this interview, but uh, can you tell our listeners where they might go to find out more about you and your work? Well, uh, you're welcome to visit the YouTube channel, of course. It's called simply Viking Archaeology, so it's easy to find. It was a little experiment I did because I think that a lot of what you can get to know about the Viking Age, if you're not a scholar, is so filtered by media, uh, not always in a positive way. Um, and if you're really interested in something, you want to learn from the scholars who have had the privilege to really study it. And, and I am such a scholar. I can see through a lot of fog for Viking Age archaeology. 
And I'm connected in ways, which means that I become aware of the most recent developments. And I wanted to share that with those who really want to know. I think there's a big need for things like that, like your podcast or some of the excellent YouTube channels and other outlets that are now coming about. And I think, well, your listeners prove that there is a real audience who's interested into that. Um, if you want to uh, see more about my work, uh, you can also have a look at the Facebook group, Northern Emporium. That's a project webpage for my main research project. The DNA study is something that I was invited into by the geneticists. But my main research project is focused on the Viking Age town of Ribe, where I headed a big excavation research project that started uh, four years ago, and we're now in the final st stages of, of uh, publishing that. So if you go to the Facebook group, Northern Emporium, you can see a lot of the finds that we made there, and you can see links to some of the papers and uh, information that's come out about that project. And it's really fascinating stuff where we're, we're seeing the evolution of the first proper Viking Age town in Scandinavia. So there's, there's lots to be learned there uh, if you are interested in the Viking Age. That is excellent. That is excellent. Thank you, Soren. And for everyone listening, I will be sure to include links to all of those things in the description of this episode. Soren, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. You're welcome. I'm glad that I could come. Thank you for listening to the History of Vikings. If you've enjoyed today's show and would like to support the podcast, please consider doing so by signing up for a digital subscription to Medieval Warfare magazine. For only $10 every six months, you will receive bi-monthly issues of, in complete honesty, the best history magazine on the market. In addition to this, you'll be directly supporting the podcast. If you choose to sign up, please do so via the link in the description of this episode, as the History of Vikings will receive a commission. You can also get a 10% discount off your subscription if you use the coupon code VIKINGS at checkout. Thank you so much again for listening. Please join us here again for another episode. Mm -hmm.